With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Go ahead. All right, everyone. Welcome to Crossroads Alpha. I'm Steve Savage, and we've got a bit of a light cast today. That's uh, just me and Jose San Mateo from Indie Haven. Say hello, Jose. Hello. So you all know Jose from Indie Haven. I'm Steve Savage of Seventh Sanctum and Muse Hack. And since we've got um, a lot of people out today, Jose and I are going to discuss a subject near and dear to our hearts, indie games. Ah, yes. Yes, well, considering you blog about it, and I've been on a pretty big indie kick for a while, which I define as... What it, I'm not playing Team Fortress 2, I thought it'd be a great subject. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Jose, since we're going to just discuss indie games that are impression of what's up lately, I'd like to share a trend I've been observing already. Good. Well, I've been playing Starbound, which is probably aptly named in the bound part for those of you following along. Um, if you've been living under a rock without internet connection, it's sort of uh, been described as Terraria in space. It's a space adventure with procedural galaxy, and the worlds are 2D scrollers, kind of pixel-esque. And it is, to put it technically, ginormous. Mm -hmm. You could probably crawl into this game and uh, not come out for six months, and it's not even finished yet. So one of the things I've wondered is, does it seem to me that a lot of indie games, Jose, are going the procedural route and the roguelike route? I see a lot more of that stuff lately. Oh, no question. That's been like a staple of the genre for a while. Um, at, least sorry, two, at least two to three years. Oh, yeah, least. yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, there's been some really awesome roguelikes that come out in, the, in indie gaming, and that's kind of been the space for it, just because it's like, it's, I mean... With indie games, there's a lot of you know callbacks to older games and older genres, and bringing a lot of those things back. And like, let's face it, you wouldn't you wouldn't find a a roguelike that would come out as a AAA game. Who who would do that? Like that's that that's like NES gaming days. So it's kind of the perfect space, perfect space for that kind of thing. Um, yeah, Starbound's a really great game. I, I believe we had the, one of their lead writers on our po- on our, on the Indie Haven podcast. I think. Uh, I think about a year ago, um, and uh, he just talked about writing a lot of the storylines and a lot of the a lot of the quirky stuff for a lot of quirky stuff for that game, um, and it was it was really really fascinating. So I'm glad you I'm glad you discovered that one. Oh, it's actually, really I was a backer. I played uh, the very very early access back when it was basically mining crap in space, the game, and I've been very impressed. But I noticed um, I've been on an indie kick deliberately the last um, six months. And I noticed the amount of roguelikes and randomized stuff. Darkest Dungeon. Star- That's a great one. Yeah, yeah. Dungeon Mans, which you know I've gone on how many times. Have you played uh, Crypt of the Necrodancer? No, everyone says I have to. Oh, I mean, you really? <laughs> if you're into roguelikes, that's definitely before, the one. Before we get back to the subject, go ahead and pitch Crypt of the Necrodancer. You know you want to. Oh, yeah. I I, I fully recommend that you play it. Um, it's a... Uh, uh, it's it came out on Steam I think uh, not not too long ago probably a month ago it's been on early access for an incredibly long time um, and it's actually meant to play be played with a DDR pad <laughs> so um, it's got all the all got all the roguelike bells and whistles to it you know procedural generation um, like you you know you it's 
it's I think even more old school than a lot of the roguelikes I think that have that have come out these days that have kind of trended towards the spelunky um what is it rogue legacy type games to where it's it's a little bit more arcadey but I think this one's like more like harkens back to the old days to where it's like when you move somebody else moves and you kind of take turns and it's a little bit little isometric kind of thing and the the but the key difference is that um you can't be deliberate with your moves you have to um, move to the beat of the music for the every single level. And so all the enemies attack on a certain beat and move on a certain beat. So you kind of, you, it kind of, it forces the action a lot of the time. And it's, it's got that, got that nice balance, I think of just, of just being deliberate and have to think about, think about everything. And that, like that pressure of having only having one life to it. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really good game. Um, but yes, roguelikes. <laughs> we'll see something you brought up there um, is triple A games wouldn't do the stuff we see, and I think what's happened with um, a lot of indie games is I, I view indie games as almost a laboratory. It's where you can try stuff. No triple A person would work on Dive Kick, mm-hmm. um, but with procedural worlds, and yes, I am hung up on this because I've just logged another twenty hours in Starbounds. And roguelikes, I actually also see the maturing of the idea of the procedural genre. You know, what Starbound has done is amazing. Starcrawlers has worked to achieve a real kind of sci-fi dungeon crawler feel. And it's something that I've wondered about in that if we have procedurally generated games maturing in the indie space, a good procedural game can suck your life away. It can go full metal Skyrim on you. Oh, no question. It says the guy that is more time logged in Dungeon Mans than Skyrim, and that was an achievement. And Dungeon Mans yet hasn't let me marry my long-suffering companions. Well, I mean, it's got that kind of um, that kind of loop to it. It's got yeah. That that you know, just pick up and play and keep on keep on doing it. And I mean, you see you see a lot of concepts of um, of roguelikes I think in a lot of other games I mean um, I don't know if you've ever played like Ollie Ollie before or Ollie Ollie 2 before um, but that's that's pretty much a roguelike too only you're on a skateboard <laughs> like, uh, you know you, you go through and you try and finish an entire level in one turn and if you, you bite it you start the level over again and it um, it just it it's perfect for it because I think it's just easy to easy to program just easy to create levels for and like just and, and it's just easy to pick up like it's um there's not a whole lot of thought there's not a whole lot of thought into the into the, the game mechanics and like how that works and people just readily kind of understand that thing understand well, that. I, I just kind of more wonder that um if procedurals now largely the space of the indie games and what that's going to mean in how they evolve and how ideas spread around because if your goal is to make a procedural game people can pay, play for 200 hours that's different than when you think, how can I create, you know, shoot bro twos, shoot more bros with particle effects that has a 15-hour campaign. That kind of changes. Well, also costs $150 million, and it's like, <laughs> you dude, know. Dude, dude, I still have flashbacks to my time in the game industry. I understand. Well, I mean, you're going to spend that much money on something, like just if you're talking about a AAA game. You're going you're to spend that much money on something, um, and with a big production, like – it's not. It's not going to be a roguelike. Like it's not yeah. going to be something that somebody's going to pick up and play and like end their experience in like 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Like you know what a what a waste of money that is. Mm-hmm. But, but I, like, I wonder if it's, my point was to just bring it back. If you don't mind me interrupting. Um, yeah, the thing is, we have if we have 
indie games doing things like procedural being the big thing I brought up because I am a you know I'm a crafting nut and a dungeon crawler um, that's going to represent a, a maturing of the procedural game but those lessons and information and le things that are learned may not spread to indie games I can almost see a split in what mechanics mature and develop among indie and AAA games well I mean kind of depends. I mean, yeah, yeah, certainly there's a lot of roguelike mechanics that are becoming really popular, but, like, there's also a, a huge trend in making the first-person survival game. I mean, oh, God. It's... Yeah, that's... Exactly. So, the, I mean, there's there's those kind of... There's a lot of trends in indie games that are kind of coming up, and that's kind of, that's kind of one of them. Ro roguelike's just a staple. I mean, just considering mm -hmm. the people that make games and what they played as a kid, like, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Like basically, if you pick a pick a genre that like that represents like a NES game, like and you're 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 guaranteed to find that that genre is gonna you know pro proliferate and and be very very popular like in in the indie space. Like look at look at you know action platformers, um, isometric con uh, isometric combat games like Final Fantasy Tactics style. I mean those those are really really popular too. And like, look at some of the most popular like indie games. Massive Chalice is a good good example of that. XCOM. Oh, yeah. I mean, the like, it's not it's not as if like a lot of these indie concepts aren't making their way into AAA spaces. Like, you know, XCOM is uh, X XCOM is like a pretty old style game. Shadowrun, same. Mm -hmm. Like, but it's just it's just reskinned and given you know given new life and new art direction, and so. Um, it's interesting that that comes. Interesting that it kind of comes around to that. Comes around to that kind of thing. Um, actually, speaking of old old school style games, um, I don't know if if you own an Apple Watch or if you have. You probably own an Apple device. I have no idea. Um, I have a device, but not a watch. I have enough computing devices. Right. Um, so I've been playing this game called Lifeline. Um, and it's an iOS game. And it's actually made to be played on a. It could be played on an I, Apple Watch, actually. And it's quite literally a text-based adventure game, and so the whole plot is you're you're like um, an astronaut contacts you on your phone, like it doesn't call you, but it's like text-based, and uh, they've crashed on a random moon, and um, this person's like your average, as average as you can be to be a spacefarer, and you have to like guide her to survive in the wilderness, right? Like so she'll she'll ask you, you know, should I explore this derelict spaceship or should I head towards this this mountain off in the distance? Like things like that, and um, the game is actually not meant to be played like in one sitting or two hours. It's meant to be played over three days, <laughs> like maybe a few days. So she'll so she'll make a decision. You make a decision for her, and then she'll like um, she'll as if to go off and do something. Um, she'll like she'll go like radio silence for like for an hour or two. But um, but it, it's interesting like that genre I think is gonna come back. <laughs> Like that text-based that text-based adventure game where it's played strictly yeah. no visuals, just you know you getting notified that this person wants you to make a decision, and the story the story is just told just the story is just told strictly through strictly through dialogue, like as if she's just radio communicating with you, like things well, like we've that. We've already seen a return to text adventures with Twine-based games, and even I think uh, visual novels, which you know, keep poking around the edges of the gaming scene are just illustrated text adventures. So I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, yeah. No, no, people, are used, people are used to texting as a medium. 
and it makes it makes total sense, right? For that, it makes total sense for that to happen. That like that kind of micro, that kind of micro gaming like that. Like people are more willing to do more, just willing to. It doesn't take a whole lot of um invest like time investment. It's not like a two hour investment. It's just like two to three minutes every day, and you get this kind of self-contained story that's told over told over a few days. And then like I I ended I just finished the game I think a couple of days ago and went through. Um, uh, maybe two playthroughs this week, and it was like it, it felt just as like I think emotionally effective I think as a as any kind of like Telltale any kind of Telltale game I played. It's it's, it's really interesting. One of the things I've kind of wondered um, with the, with the indie scene um, and other games anyway is it seems like um, because we're now so used to gaming, we have a language to understand it with, mm-hmm. so we can innovate on it. People can look at a roguelike and pick it up. People know what a text adventure is. People know what an FPS is. There's enough common cultural knowledge that more people can play these. I think that actually helps the indie scene a lot because the indie and the smaller game scene are a strange mixture of appealing to enthusiasts and appealing to newcomers. I mean, I I can't think of anyone I can, you know, turn on to, you know, Call of Duty or the rich mythology of Dishonored easy, but they'd say get Tomb of Tyrants or Necrodancer very, or Overture very easily. It's funny, because, like, probably the most indie folks, like, or as indie as you can find, are probably folks that do a lot of mobile gaming. Like, even the even some of the most popular popular stuff you'll find out there, like, all those mechanics are, are just really, really simple. And they're just, they're just made for people to, you know, just to, to tap buttons and and that's that's kind of it. Don't even start me on what Kingdom what Kingdom Rush has done to me before. That's... Oh, have you? Uh, I, that's one of my probably my favorite genres. <laughs> oh, How many of them have you played? Yes, I, all of them. Huh? You played Origins. I'm, you played. I'm, I'm yeah. still finishing Origins. I played the first two. Um, I it gets obsessive, but if you notice, it's it's brilliant in that the game has very deep mechanics, extremely simple to play. I could teach it to a non-gamer in 30 minutes, and they'd have a ball. And that's the that's kind of, that's the appeal of the industry. Uh, um, I think the appeal of indie gaming is is its accessibility. Well, um, sometimes, to to do sometimes that. indie games also go the really hardcore. I'm not going to exactly have someone pick up Risk of Rain. Meat Boy, like that's yeah. probably another one, right? You have to explain Meat Boy to people. That would get a little bit weird. But yeah, it's like indie games seem to be. Um, just going broad, which I think is again part of the appeal, is they're they're far less tied to certain market cycles. That I think is just iteration. I think on the genre, just people, just you, you know, people going through the cycle and like seeing what other people have done and seeing how can I how can I innovate on how can I innovate on the genre. So like ironically, like I think the most creative stuff you'll find is is people that have been put under those kinds of restraints of a those kinds of restraints of a of a genre. Of a, of a type of gaming, and so I've been thinking about this actually for a while. Um, that I think where you have genre fiction and you have a lot of genre stuff um, in in publishing and in books, and I think you have a lot of genre gaming. You know that that kind of thing where you're you're necessarily put under the constraints of a certain genre with certain expectations on, on what you're supposed to be doing, whether it's mechanics wise or 
or anything like that and then you're you're asked to innovate within that and there's a certain expectation and there's certain certain markets for certain markets for genres that get popular that that, could, that go out of style and come back into style in the same ways that that science fiction or or fantasy or romance or anything like that can be um, can go through their own cycles. So hmm. that's kind of the way that I see it. That kind of makes me wonder something here with indie games. Are indie games a mixture of having definite constraints of you know money, time, um, you know all the different things that you're going to face in a limited indie designer, but also the room to solve them any way you damn well please. <laughs> there's a there's a running joke actually in Indie Haven. This relates. Um, where you know we get into the what is indie question, <laughs> right? And we like spent we, we literally spent two months talking about this question before starting. Indie is deciding, like you know. porn. You know it when you see it, and it's all over the internet. It, it, exactly, like or, or indie indie music, um, and that's kind of a I mean just what you asked is a little bit of a little bit of a broad question, and it's like it's it depends. Like say for example, um, there's there's a trip. Like in some very similar to the movie industry, to where you have just this kind of divide of, you know, big huge AAA games that are making a ton of money, and then what else is there? Like in the same way, like there's there's this huge void in in gaming between the the AAA developers and the AA and then the uh, and then the indie developers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the times, like whatever's in between gets kind of lumped gets kind of lumped into indie gaming, so company like Telltale Games for example like is is that is that really indie anymore like when they're taking on like po- properties that like a lot of people know like Game of Thrones or or Wolf Among Us which is the Fable series you know they're doing Tales of the Borderlands they're doing all these other things like you know is that that there's like there's talk on that's on our site whether like that's that's indie gaming anymore but like that's not quite that's not quite triple a games you know that's not going to be selling that's not going to be selling you know millions of copies but it's still you know profitable enough to to fill that kind of void fill that kind of void uh, that's kind of up there so you have that kind of upper tier kind of stuff right and then you have the kind of lower tier I, I don't want to call it lower tier, but it's just like if you're talking profits wise or, or you know the ability to sell a lot of copies like the stuff on stuff that goes on itch.io like you know there's some really really good twine games or really really good very very small experiences out there, and mm-hmm. so those are indie as well. So it's like um, it's it's kind of a continuum out there. Like <laughs> like what do you yeah. what do you call double fine? <laughs> you know, a game uh, like it, Massive Chalice, right? Honestly, erratic. They're they they're with Double Fine, it's like people love them, people hate them. They tried all these different things. I think Double Fine is trying to cut out its very own niche. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's it is hard because the term indie does is a continuum. Like I would consider Telltale to be indie that evolved up and got patronage and so forth, and more power to them. They make great stuff, but you know, they make the problem of the scale difficult. In fact, I based on what you'd said, you know, it's like indie music. I wonder if we're going to have a point in the next few years of kind of having people who are decrying something not being indie enough or it's not underground enough. I think and it's a that I sincerely hope not because I'll have to yell at those people. Well, it's funny because I think that argument and that question is just kind of a moot point. It's kind of it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit pointless to have it. Like, people are still going to argue about it. I still don't need to hear if the Mimbari can defeat the Death Star, but I'm sure people are still having the argument. <laughs> um. Actually, I wanted to talk a little bit about Kickstarter. Um, I guess I, the big... Why don't we move on to that? Because it's a good time to do it. Well, I mean, 
um, biggest, I think the biggest thing, one of the biggest, I think, stories come out of E3, um, is that Shenmue 3 <laughs> ended, up, ended up raising about, three, <laughs> ended up raising about $3 million. And so, um, I don't want to be a Shenmue hater here, but like this, I don't see, I don't see how this game <laughs> gets, the, gets three, three versions of it. Um, but this was originally a Sega Saturn game. And, um, oh, I'm, I, yeah, I know. I should note that. Shenmue fans are very dedicated, so this does not surprise me. Oh, this no, is, not at all. But this that's is where like culture comes into it. Okay, yeah, and then they they raised almost like three million. They're almost they're basically have about twenty six days left, and they've already far exceeded their two million dollar goal. So they've they've raised about three million, three point five million dollars for this game, and that's I think that's a testament to a power of a fan base and to the power of a to a power of a game like that. Um, I mean, you could probably you could argue like, why the hell did this need a Kickstarter? Like, you would have, like, you what you would have found a publisher for this. <laughs> like, you know, like, like, why did you need this? <laughs> well, Steve, I'm gonna actually do this in their defense. Um, if I were to hear, hey, I'm gonna remake Shenmue, I would have laughed at it myself. Mm-hmm. My first thought was, no, you'll never do enough of it. It's too much of a risk. It's remembered too goofily. If you're a big publisher, it's not something you take a chance on. Well, but the Kickstarter thing obviously did work. You know, it had enough cultural cachet yeah. in people's minds to to warrant it, to like yeah. to get enough people to give to give to give money for that. <laughs> it, it exceeded. I figured it would get backing, and it exceeded my expectations by far. Well, wasn't there some real big names backing it too at one point? I I've only followed it intermittently because it's not exactly high on my list of things I care about, but it's interesting culturally. Um, yeah, well, it it got play at E3, so like they basically announced it on stage that they were they were doing Kickstarter for that game, mm-hmm. and like that platform is what kind of pretty much pretty much launched the campaign and what what gave it the cachet and gave it the uh, um gave it what it needed. I mean, I, I think it, I think it would have gotten popular and would have gotten gotten funded. Regardless of what they did at E3, but that certainly that certainly that certainly helps the game. <laughs> but we did a podcast, I think, on authorship for what I think a few days, what maybe a few weeks ago. I think it was one of our one of our first things uh, that we did. Um, and I think that's probably I think that's a big big trend. I think that's happening with a lot of indie games. Well, like particularly particularly in Japan. Um, like look at Igarashi and doing Bloodstained. And okay, Mighty yeah. Number Nine, we like, knew that was going to do great. Yeah, well, of course, <laughs> because um, I because I think those games have a lot of cultural cachet. But for whatever reason, a publisher like Capcom or, or somebody else like doesn't want to do that anymore. Like doesn't want to give that that person a chance. I think to to do their game or to make a new IP. I mean, because um, they've already made enough Mega Man games. Like they couldn't they couldn't do any more of them. <laughs> Uh, despite the demand, but there was a demand for it, but Capcom didn't want to didn't want to pay this man, and um, so he went to Kickstarter, and like, and that makes a lot of sense. I think if you're if you're uh, like, if you're a big name creator and you have a name if you have a name behind yourself, like that's where you kind of are, are kind of going to go is <laughs> to make well, to make I've, a quote unquote indie game. <laughs> I've wondered, and I've I've seen this drifting around in game discussions. Uh, I think uh, one of our friends Scott even brought it up. Is it's almost as if the big name producer, big name game creator is going away, 
Also it's, not. You know, I don't think so. I mean, well, yeah, I'm just saying, you know, in the AAA space, you know, you don't have the big names as much. That's just something I've seen discussed. Don't know if it's true or not. You know, if it's maybe, you know, you don't want as many wild cards as how it's perceived, whether, again, true or not. So I wonder, you know, whether Kickstarter appeals to people that'd rather be auteurs. I mean... Again, that's... Mother, I mean... Just past discussion with friends, I can't come. Well, okay. Like, a, like Castlevania. <laughs> like, you know, that's got such... Cult- I've said this a couple times. Like, just cultural cachet with people that have played that genre or are in love with it. Like, mm-hmm. And it has such a um, like emotional attachment for people that to get more of it is is going to bring a lot of people. I mean, I think Mega Man does the same thing. Um, what? Okay. What? Like, I wonder. So, if say Miyamoto like <laughs> wasn't with Nintendo anymore and he decided to make a Kickstarter for a for a Mario type game. All my money. Yeah. Ex- exactly. Right. <laughs> So, I I can tell you right now I would plunk down fifty dollars right away. So is our tourship really dead? Like, <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's dead. The argument I've heard advanced is that it's dying out in the larger titles, so it's moving to Kickstarter, indie, semi-indie, and double A's. Well, I mean, not that it's dying. In fact, it's probably better off than it's ever been, but its locus is shifting. Well, okay, look at it from their perspective, right? Like, if if I was if I was a garage or, or um. Uh, in a fune, right? It's that like, sounds like a great cosplay idea. <laughs> there you go. I mean, why do I need Capcom? Like, you don't. You, you don't. It, it makes a lot of sense. Like, people know me enough. Like, people are um, like, I have a reputation within the industry, like enough for to have made this game that like, um, to make another one that you're gonna get exactly what you want. And like, I don't, I don't need them take my cut from a publisher. I don't need somebody... Uh, I mean, I don't need to deal with that hassle anymore. And it makes a lot of sense. Which is the whole appeal of indie of whatever scale. Ah, but like... Uh, I mean, depends on the person, right? Like, if you're, you know, Joe Schmo on the street. <laughs> or, and you're making an indie game and you have no name behind you to sell it. But, maybe, maybe not. Well, that not that the next thing that we need to evolve in indie is better and better publicity... And better and better promotion and better and better awareness. That's the problem. I mean, as an independently published author, um, you know, especially because I haven't had the time I wanted to market my stuff, you know, I've had to rely on luck. And I think for indies, a big issue is people learning how to promote. You know, Steam is not going to do it. Kickstarter can help. But learning promotion is important because there's obviously a lot of good stuff dying on the vine or getting ignored. Well, I think it. This is the Steam problem, right? That's the iOS store. <laughs> it's the iOS store problem is publishing, publishing it's and marketing. I mean, as we've, um, I think this was another podcast uh, that we, we kind of talked about. This is like, I don't think technical challenges are ever the issue anymore, or, or ever, or platforms are not the issue no. anymore. There are, there are a lot of them. Like, if you want your, if you want your stuff out there, it's really, really easy. If you want st- people to notice your stuff, like. That's the million-dollar question. That's why they pay marketing people millions of dollars. I still say I can see the future being people that are just marketing experts for indies or, you know, not as we have now. I mean, a real deliberate career. You see, you know, 
I do this independent marketing, whatever. I could see that being a legitimate defined career choice in the next 10 years because it's needed. Okay, well. I mean, the weird thing is I'm terrible at promoting myself, yet I help my friends out with ideas I can't even apply to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, well, I mean, let's play this out then, right? How, how are you going to do that and, and, and make our marketing easier for, some, for somebody? Is that a platform side problem? Is that, is that Steam's problem to fix that and, and promote games? You see, I think, it's a, or, I think the thing is it's that... Or curate them, rather. Yeah, it's a question of not Steam or any one person. Like it or not, we've got the system we've got here. It's educating people and finding ways to use the tools or even build new ones. How you do? How do you do a good marketing campaign? How do you make people aware? Can you crowdsource signal boosting? You know, in a conscious way as opposed to the random retweet way. The, I mean, yeah, I don't know. The buzzword I think is is community building. Is is the the ability to make a community around think. your game and around it. Um, we're, the previous examples we've used already. There's, I mean, there's a built-in community around around Mega Man. There's a built-in community around Castlevania. Like there, there are there are fans and a steady following that did that was built over built over 30 years. Let me uh, bring this around then. One of the things I know to to take it back to the start of our conversation with Starbound. Um, Starcrawler's Darkest Dungeon. A lot of the games I've really been enjoying lately, I've noticed this, they build a community. There's a huge one. Kerbal Space Program. That's one. uh, Jesus. I mean, I feel like I don't even want to play this game, yet I feel like I'm missing out. Um, Precisely. Minecraft. TF2. Mm -hmm. With all the, you know, the hat economy. Um, And I do really hope they approve the Star-Lord get-up for the scout, but I'm biased. Anyway... I've noticed um, the good indie games build community, and even Kickstarter can do that. When you Kickstart and you talk to people and you pay attention, you really get involved. I think 90% of the Kickstarters I've ordered have been late. But they tell me, I keep in touch with them, I like the updates, they've built a community. I think you're right on community building, and it has to start right away, but also successful indie games have validated it. Well, I mean... I think and you're you the when, to the community. Well, because like because you, your earlier question to me was about mar- about marketing, right? I don't I don't think the issue I think is particularly marketing. I think it's more particularly community building. How do you get people invested invested in your product? You see, I mean, I'm, but not looking at it when when you're trying to sell like marketing implies. I think you're you're trying to sell somebody stuff something. Um, but I think community building is more participation like in your in your product or in your IP. Um, one of the, I guess the fat, one of the more fascinating games I think I've been been looking at grow is this game called Worlds Adrift. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this game. Have you heard of it? No, no. no. Worlds Adrift. It's uh, by Bossa Studios. Um, and so if you've ever played like I Am Bread, or um, Surgeon Simulator, like they're that studio. And so they're building a, uh, um, an open world like MMO, that takes place in a consistent world. So. Unlike World of Warcraft, something like that, if I destroy the mountain, like in the distance, like that mountain's going to be destroyed for every single player, like in the game. Um, and it's all about you're pretty much building airships. <laughs> that's the that's the whole that's the whole crux of the whole crux of the game. And uh, from the get go, when they they announced the game, they literally just opened it up to people. They're, they're um, they they said, hey, you know, this is our concept. This is what we're doing. Um, 
buy in. Give us give us feedback. Um, this is how we're doing it. Like these are the changes and iterations I think in the process. And um, they they're starting the process I think of building a community, building a community for an MMO. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes that's like that that doesn't happen I think after the development cycle is over. Like they're doing it while the development cycle is going on. Like from the from the, yeah. from the very very and there's beginning. a there's a risk, but you have to take that risk. Mm-hmm. And I think it pays off. One thing that's happened with Double Fine, I noticed that they've had a few things where people weren't happy with their delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. But what do they do? They have documentaries that that go up on on all their yeah. games. Like they're they. Um... But I'm just I'm just noting. You know, I think people people realize you know you got to deliver. But yes, you got to build a community. What I'm saying is they commit their they treat their community properly. And you have to. Um, one thing I'm doing is my next book is on uh, Sailor Moon fandom, and I'm going to start reaching. You know, I'm reaching out to people to interview along with you know my co-author Bonnie. And once we get moving further, we're going to start publishing regular updates and so on. Build a community because it's about community. And this has actually changed. You know, this combines with what you said. This has changed my view of indie games, in that I'm now seeing just how much has to be done. But also what it means, people want to be engaged in. People want to be engaged in, be engaged with. People want to connect. And whenever you have a good Kickstarter, an indie game, a mod community, that makes the fun and depth and challenge of a game far more enhanced because you connect with people. And it's not just it sells it, it's a very human need. Of community, right, yeah. and that's. I think it's one thing that turned me off to... um, you know, like I said, I've been on an indie kick. I've been got turned off to the AAAs because it didn't always feel like community to me. It felt like being sold to. Uh, the first big AAA thing I got enthused about the last six months was Overwatch because it felt like a pure love letter to batshit crazy. Hmm. Have you played The Witcher yet? No, I've heard I've got to. Yeah, um, it's probably one of the but best games that engagement. This is one thing where I think indies can really well, benefit is Okay. If you engage with your community, they'll feel a sense of ownership, <clears throat> camaraderie. Well, The Witcher, I think it's, that's a AAA game, um, but I think they're pro- they're kind of an example of, of what we're talking about. I mean, here, I mean, Project Project Red is a, is was a like a small um, Polish. I think I think it's Poland, I believe. Yeah, they're semi Indian. They're, sem- they're semi indie but like that series is like a national treasure. <laughs> like. <laughs> National treasure to them. Um, I've heard it's absolutely excellent. I probably should check oh, it yeah. out. Okay, well, I mean, here's, here's an example of what that game means to them. Is like when you know, President Obama went to the country, to that country. What did what did he get? A copy of The Witcher, <laughs> so like from from the president of Poland. So it's, I mean, there's there's a community around that game that's pretty small, uh, that's focused, but it's like it's dedicated and um, mm-hmm. and it matters. Um, Bloodborne. Dark Souls. It's a, oh, yeah. it's a very that's kind oh. of a, it's a very very similar thing. I, I'm amazed that I'm amazed that game gets made. Like you kind of wonder. These, these games too. The one thing they appeal to is they put in all the challenge and all the hidden stuff. You feel like even if they're big games, you feel like they really know you. They get you because they're creating a game for you. You know when I played the Dark Souls and Demon Souls. It was a game made for people that loved games, and you could tell. And even that level of design and those little extras, um, they speak to something. They engage you. 
engagement really is key to a lot of this. Right. Well, I mean, you say they know you, but I think it's just they know it's you just, in the context of they know exactly what uh, the community, their community of players is looking for. Like, they they doubled down and said, like, um, oops, I don't want to curse on this podcast. <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> but they said, like, you know, F you. <laughs> um, F you, general public. Like I'm not I'm not gonna be I'm not going to make this something that's going to appeal to everybody. I'm going to make this appeal to like the people that matter, and that's kind of a it's kind of a bold move, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To to do that to like to actively to you know purposefully you know shrink the audience for your game towards a very specific group of people, right? <laughs> and it works. Sometimes it yeah, sometimes it does focus. Then again, focus is always important. Right. Um, and that's kind of the name. That's kind of the name of the game, right? Yeah. Well, as a project manager and program manager, I can assure you, focus is great to see, and I'd love to see more of it. Mm-hmm. I, to me, the challenge with you know indie games is seeing how they get organized and done too. Um, I'd probably do a whole book on that if I wanted to interview people, but I'm a little busy right now. You could probably do a whole book on failed Kickstarters, like and ones that got funded and like the developer just disappeared. Like there's a graveyard of that kind of stuff of people getting screwed out of their money. Well, that'd be really great to detail that, have the potential lawsuits inflame the bitterness. Yeah. If I'm ever talking about writing about positive stuff, maybe I'll do the the necropolis. Of <laughs> but Steve, the sad the sad part of it is like it how often it happens that like nobody gets their money back. I know. Though I'm also thinking necropolis of Kickstarter could be my new indie band. <laughs> that's a good that's a good one. We're we're geek metal where you actually pay per lyric for our song. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would rather not. Um, the Kickstarter thing has you know there's enough bitterness out there. And yeah. positive thing, I I think it's been done enough, and the idea of a book on it um, disturbs me. I think because I once read a book called Software Runaways in an attempt to understand um, project arrangement better and how you could um, you know understand projects by ones that had failed. And by the middle of the book, I was extremely depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. Way through, I realized one of the projects in the book was one I was still on. Ah. So yeah, those things kind of depress me. I don't enjoy doing them as much. Oh. <laughs> well. The, the why stuff sucks books. There's too many of those. I actually did want to take this a little bit out of out of gaming a little bit, and uh, I mean, we're we're talking about marketing and like and actually kind of focusing focusing on your audience. Like, I mean, I, I'm wondering if that that would be worth it. I think for things outside of gaming. Um, like you, you know, you have the whole four four quadrant style movie, right? Of a blockbuster, it's supposed to appeal to, um, supposed to appeal to a lot of people. Um, but what if you double down on that end and and been like, you know, I'm going to make a movie that's going to be very focused on a specific specific sort of audience, and say like, you know what, screw screw the general public and screw making this accessible to everybody. And it's say, already being done. Look at some of the indie documentaries. Um, Nick Foley, Mick Foley's documentary "I Am Santa Claus," um, you know, "Jingle Bell Rock" to ah, right. strong Christmas. They were very focused and they worked. I think as long as you know you have the audience, you can do it. Okay, well, would that explain why I'm getting a remake of Point Break? And 
like, like any remake of Big Trouble in Little China. I was like, is that is that an audience like somehow somebody felt that had enough cultural cachet to be like, if like, I made this movie, <laughs> I'm gonna get a lot of people to go to go sit down and watch it. I think people in Hollywood that view the Human Centipede as a business model, <laughs> not the movies, the process of endlessly feeding us the same old shit. So. No, I think that's a Hollywood problem. Me, I'll be watching Mick Foley dress up as Santa Claus or watching a documentary on mobile small homes that are self-made. And yeah, I kickstarted one on the famous uh, famous electronic artist Corla because I remember seeing shots of this guy. <laughs> yeah, I think there's points where I think it's best to say screw it if you have enough audience and build a community. Mm-hmm. And if you maintain your integrity, the community will also grow. That's another thing with you know indie games is if you build a community, it can expand as long as you do it right and keep to your integrity. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of um, examples of individual indie developers that like that kind of grew their audience based on the games that they've made. Um, Mike Mike Bithell I think is a good example of that. Like he had <laughs> um, Thomas was alone, um, mm-hmm. and now he he's kind of grown into like this little indie indie not little but he's kind of an indie folk hero. I mean, like, he, he made Thomas Was Alone and got really popular, and now he's making a game, like, called Volume, and is like, and he's really popular. Rami is also, uh, also a good one to that, you know, making Nuclear Throne and, like, and all these other, um, and becoming really, really popular in the indie space. But, like, then, I guess the, the common thing is they themselves, based on the games that they made, became, pe- like, um, created the cultural cachet for themselves. Like amongst developers and amongst an audience that they, people trust them. Well, take you back in to Starbound. These guys have just—I mean, I could probably do maybe maybe when they finish the game, I'll do a book on Starbound. They engage with their audience. They got the game out in playable format. I mean, people have been willing to wait two years to get a complete game, and they were modding it after the first version came out. But they built their cachet, they keep delivering product, they keep engaging with everyone, they update their blog every few days. That's brilliant. And I'll tell you right now, when Starbound is finished, it's probably the only thing I'm going to play for three months. Mm-hmm. Because I will start over just to experience it all from the beginning for the fourth time, because these guys deliver. And I feel personally attached. And I like that feeling. That is important. And those guys, you know, Rami, all the rest, they get that. They build that connection. And it's a positive connection, too. That's another thing. You like these people for what they do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. I felt the same way about Massive Chalice, too. That's a great game. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even if occasionally you're trying to save the world with an inbred arthritic idiot because you didn't manage your bloodlines right. For those of you that are, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> A tactical game of that also involves having to found heroic bloodlines for a 300-year war. So if you're not careful, you are basically fighting with a, you know, you're basically fighting with it's Game characters. of Thrones, basically. <laughs> it, it, no, it's it's there, well, there's there's less sex and less sex and less Dinklage, mm-hmm. but there is more inbreeding if you're not careful. And um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's it's great to see a game where people argue. Could we please have incest? Because sometimes they get their bloodlines, you know, turned into a single flowing stream, and they'd like to inbreed the characters. Mm-hmm. So, what's your what's your favorite character in Starbound? Which one? Do you... Which which sure. which which uh, type of uh, I guess uh, planet or type of uh, type of creature? 
was your favorite in that game? Well, the thing is, I I mean, I just remember these giant um, these giant creatures that were these big white lumps with lizard heads that could generate shields. Mm-hmm. And when I realized they were doing that, that freaked me out that they were so um, well done. And on one planet I mine, there's creatures that have the ancient flame ability. They look like dragon turtles, and they are just so annoying, yet the emotional reaction I have to seeing one of those creatures going around really shows me how good the game is. Yeah, for sure. Well, the procedurally generated monsters, on top of the fact they have a monster trainer mechanic that unlocks later, mm-hmm. is fantastic. I wish they'd balanced the difficulty curve out a bit, but they're still working on it. The third boss quest is a bit of a pain in the butt. Um, do you know who Ashton Reese is? The name rings a bell. But, um, um, Ashton um, is the is the one of the lead writers on Starbound. What's his uh, handle? Um, it's Ashton Reese. Um, but, uh, yeah. but, sorry, Ashton actually makes uh, games. Um, actually makes games and uh, has her has the no or has her own company, I think, um, called Alcave, and I would highly recommend you play like Richard and Alice or some of some of the other games that uh, that he's made. Um. But definitely worth it. But I would highly oh. recommend I would highly recommend Richard and Alice and some of the other games from Alcave. But awesome. if you if you like if you like Starbound, so well I've noticed they promote their other associated games and I'll definitely check those out. But the problem is they created Starbound. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, Play other games. I don't think so. I'm almost to the core of this planet. That's a problem, right? You have something like a Steam sale where they sell you like thousands of games at cheap prices, and it's like. When am I ever going to play any of them? I have a rule. I allow myself to have one major game at a time. I have certain games I can relax with. You know, my big thing for needing to kill 30 minutes is Team Fortress 2. Um, you know, even occasionally you're playing with guys with handles like Donnie Sexbag. Um, though Donnie was really a great soldier. <laughs> but I, I limit myself because we, jokes aside, we're in a golden age of gaming. I think so. And There's a lot too out much there. Sp- Oh, Sanctuary RPG Black was amazing. Pillars of Eternity, like. Oh, I haven't had a chance to check that one out yet. Oh, it's everyone was saying is great. Then I heard the controversy about the gravestone joke, and I found out this is a weird way to learn about this game. Oh, well, if you like old Infinity Engine games, like that's that Neverwinter Nights, Baldur's Gate, like that's for you. (laughs) I want to repeat, I am playing Starbound. Yeah, exactly. So (laughs) it's going to occupy me for two to three more weeks. And then I will probably say, okay, I'll wait till the next content update. So, yeah. Oh, uh, Hero Generations is another one to check out. It's a um, generational roguelike where every turn is a year. So your hero dies in a few minutes each time, and you have to spawn the next generation. Mm-hmm. And it's combined with a 4X game. Uh, oh, actually, when we were talking about E3 and stuff earlier, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of No Man's Sky. Um, oh yeah, no. I play Starbound, and I haven't heard of No Man's Sky. <laughs> right? Uh, the development cycle, I think, for that game is going to be really interesting because, I mean, they, oh, yeah. I mean, for an indie developer, and for folks that like are relative unknowns in Hello Games, like they, there is like so much expectation put into that, put into that game, um, and I worry a little bit, like if they're going, if they're Me going too. to be able to deliver on like a how much hype and how much promise I think they they put into that. I mean that's that's 
if you talk about Starbound, that's pretty much Starbound, right? Like in the first. Well, person, no, like... Starbound is No Man's Sky is much heavier on the travel, and Starbound is heavier on the crafting, and they have a, they have a very different approach. Starbound doesn't have space battles, for instance. I think what No Man's Sky is doing is um, everything I've read, and you know me, I love studying how projects run. I mean, I still can go on about Gearbox's proper use of Agile methodology because I'm pathetic. <laughs> No Man's Sky, from everything I've read, they're actually doing a procedurally mature development cycle. They have planned very well, they've written tools and so forth, so I expect it to be a very well-done game. My concern is more that people aren't expecting what they're going... Their expectations may be different in what it's going to be. For what I can tell is it's got a procedural generated world, some resource gathering, some space adventuring and so on it sounds like it's got a lot of breadth but its depth may not be say you know unlocking 20 crafting tubes well I think from a marketing perspective too I think they're doing it really smart and not I mean, and not pumping themselves up too much and, yeah. and not it's very it's very humble yeah. for what they're doing and they're not they're not doing their part to fan the flames like you know yeah. they're, they're just like gonna put their head down and try and make a good game because they they don't need they don't need to do a whole lot more marketing yeah. <laughs> more marketing on this thing um, I think the thing that they have to be I think the thing that they have to be careful on is um, the game has enough expectations to fail people but also it doesn't sound like they're. It sounds like they're going for breadth over depths of mechanics, if you know what I mean. Oh yeah, that's smart. I think that's. And I think that's too. appropriate for what they're doing. But if people are disappointed, there's not a 30 tier skill tree in 20 classes. Um, that's about the only place I could see it falling down. I think that's that's what I think is smart. Is they're not making promises that they they're not sure that they can keep. <laughs> so it's like... I think they. I think maybe that's important too. Is they want to do their game. And not have everyone else sitting on their head telling them what to do, which I can respect. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Exactly. I mean, it, I think that's, that's what it's all about, right? I think making promises that you can keep. Um, and they've yeah. done, I think, a pretty good. Um, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. I, I admit, I'm going to get it. What's the current release date, anyway? There is none. They're actually looking to make a release date for the release date. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, after they hold the pre-meeting meeting for the meeting meeting. That's a trend now these days. So. <laughs> yeah, well, trust me, I know. I've been there, too. It's just that I, they, you know, they should have some announcements so people don't assume the title No Man's Sky is referring to how many people are going to get a chance to play it this generation. It's not a Steve Miller band song, right? <laughs> that would be a good song named. Now, that, that sounds like a great idea. Indie game or, ba- or indie band? You know? <laughs> or both, you know. Yeah, I listened to Dungeon Mans when they were undergrad. <laughs> right. And Darkest Dungeon does sound like a nerd metal band. <laughs> For sure. Hey, listen, it's been uh, quite a while, so why don't we sign off, and next time we should have much more of the gang on, and we're hopefully going to discuss great heroines in media next time. Hey, well, so. they, they missed out, so... <laughs> well, yeah, they did, and, you know, they we got to discuss everything from... Uh, from indie games to publicity to me playing a game with a guy whose handle was Donnie Sexback. So, <laughs> well, that was actually funny because that's where I was showing Team Fortress 2 to someone to show them the magic, and then Donnie Sexbag comes onto my team, and I have to explain nicknames. You know, he just comes up in the most inopportune times. So. <laughs> well, it's also a game where my, I was playing Engineer, and my turret was smarter than the, my my team. And that's really depressing. You go, yeah, that mechanical thing, smarter than actual real-life people I'm playing with currently. <laughs> Except for Donnie Sexbag... Ha, ha, ha.
They should feel very insulted. <laughs> Listen, we it's been great. Jose, do you have any final words? Uh, no, other than play more indie games. Or check us out at Indie Haven, www.indiehaven.com. I think actually you should go to Indie Haven to find what games to play, yeah. and it'll help you. It'll help you salve your mind as you wait for No Man's Sky to come out in time for your grandchildren. Exactly. <laughs> and okay, that's it. Take care, everyone. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.